The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast with your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm not sure what we're radiating yet. We decided that we're going to decide. We decided that we're going to determine that. But I'm here with Jerry Hyde, who has followed a fairly conventional career throughout his 30s before completely losing the plot in his early 40s, and he's now 50. Although we're not counting, are we? And rebranding. Oh, no, I wish I was 50. I'm a lot older than 50. Well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and so now you're in this somewhat out there style for which you've become known, which some have dubbed gonzo therapy after, the, of course, the great Hunter S. Thompson. How are you, Jerry? Good, thank you. I'm feeling even better since you said I was 50. <laughs> hey, this is your great publicist, Gavin, who's <laughs> so lovely. So, um, oh my goodness, what is my hair doing here? Um, you've written this book called Empathy for the Devil, which just seems so interesting. Uh, it's about basically psychedelics and sex and all of these really interesting topics. So, what do you think that radiates? Well, yeah. What do? Uh, what does it radiate? It's it's a contradictory radiation. I think it radiates darkness and hope. I hope it radiates darkness and hope. But hope through going. It, I like those. I really like those old Greek myths that they used to teach us in school where someone goes down into the underworld or down into the labyrinth and they they emerge after competing certain trials or ordeals. So I hope it radiates, yeah, hope via the darkness because you got to go into the darkness to, to find that sometimes. You know what, Jerry? I do think that is perfect because it really is only after this dark night of the soul, after this, you know, exploring the shadow, exploring the depths that we really do find ourselves and that gives lots of hope. Yeah, there's a great Joseph Campbell quote, which I can't remember in its entirety, but it's something like it's by going in, down into the abyss that we recover our treasure. Right. And yeah, the, the legends and folklore and mythology all point to this too, don't they? Yeah. We've got Persephone, we've got, you know, um, oh my gosh, I can't even remember all of the, the great um, models for this, going to the depths of despair until we can find this hope and find what really the treasure, what we're looking for. Yeah. Um, so I understand that you had sought some help at one point in your life for drug dependency and subsequently retrained as a psychotherapist, which is fascinating. How do you think your journey through that drug dependency like led you to psychotherapy? 
I mean, that's, yeah, there's different ways I could answer that. Um, on a simplistic level, I remember seeing my first therapist and very quickly, maybe like in session two, having this light bulb moment where I thought, so if I, uh, this sounds more cynical than it is, I don't mean it cynically, but if I became a therapist, then this whole mess that my life has been, I was 28 then, this whole mess suddenly becomes a qualification. So there was something of making, you know, the cliche that is you often hear around therapy worlds is the alchemy of it. But I do, I like cliches. They're founded in repetition and truth. So the alchemy of transforming the kind of base shitty life into something more golden was very appealing. And it's kind of come true. And now I'm 57, must be totally transparent. Now that I I'm in my... too. <laughs> We're the same age. Cool. Dragons, 1964, right? Heck yeah. Yeah. Um, at this age, one of the things that if I was going to say, what, what, how do I, you know, measuring success is very difficult. One of the things I feel is a measure of success that I feel really pleased, gives me a lot of uh, joy, is everything I've ever done in my life now feeds into what I do now. So the drugs that I was using very irresponsibly and indiscriminately in my late teens, early 20s, it did give me some education as to how to be around that world, how to be around people in altered states of consciousness that I now apply to my work as a therapist when I'm working with people who are beginning to explore plant medicines, which I think are incredibly dangerous and very, very powerfully, you know, very, very useful and potentially healing. Uh, but you kind of need to know how to navigate it. So I've later in life come to really appreciate my kind of misbehavior, as society would call it, when I was young, it's become an asset. Quite, right, because um, your book does cover the use of this plant medicine and the difference between that and narcotics and drug abuse. Can mm. you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I say I'm, I'm pro-drugs and anti-drug abuse, by which I mean some, certainly not all drugs, you know, I haven't seen any... I can't I can't see a positive lining to things like you know meth and crack but um certain substances have been used for millennia and if you approach them with a huge amount of respect preferably if you've done a lot of work on yourself to stabilize and iron out any latent you know serious mental health issues and stabilize yourself they can I guess the best description would be, you could say they give you access to your unconscious, which of course, because it's your unconscious, you can't get access to in a, in a kind of sober state. Right. So I think that's, that's part of the benefit. So when used ceremonially and with guidance, which they have been through, you know, throughout the centuries in, in the care of a shaman, someone like that, I think they can be very powerful. But if you mistreat them, if you don't respect them, if you don't have humility, if you use them indiscriminately, they can also be fun. You know, everyone probably can say they've had fun on alcohol or recreational drugs, but you, you take these things too far and they quickly become problematic. Probably true of all mind-altering substances, you know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they can alternatingly be fun enlightening and really dangerous yeah. but it's kind of like a, it seems like a russian roulette when we yes. go out using them indiscriminately mm. what the experience is going to be yeah i mean i i'm i'm an advocate in certain to certain people at certain times of their life of psychedelics whilst being very frightened of them because i i view my use as Certainly when I was younger, I think that description, Russian roulette, is one I've used a lot. And I feel like I've used up all the empty cylinders, you know. And so each time, it's a few years now since I've done anything like that. I had about 30 years off before I went back. And then under a lot of guidance and with a lot of care, but it still really scares me. I probably always should. That's probably, you know, I think that's a good attitude to go in with a degree of not sure where I'm going here. No. Right, because it does leave us open to so many things. Of course, chief among that, our shadow self. Mm. 
Right, yeah. Or not just open, it takes us in touch with, takes us in contact with. Right, right. And what can be the detriment of that? What happens then? Well, I think our egos are very attached to not having a shadow. And so you can get into, you know, really... When you take some of these, have some of these experiences, they do, you know, we hear this phrase, ego death. Well, it's real. Your ego doesn't want to die any more than you and I do, so it will fight back. And that's where I think people can have these experiences that we probably incorrectly would label a bad trip. I mean, you can certainly have a horrible experience, especially if you're not, you know, helped and guided. Um, I don't personally go with the idea of a bad trip. I think we can have experiences that we don't enjoy and that can shake us up but again you tend to get shown what you get need you know what you need to be shown but if your ego goes no i'm not that kind of person i want to know that then you can end up quite split i think and disturbed so the you know the number one word for me with any of these things is surrender you have to surrender to what you're shown right how would one do that to accept it, to not fight, to whatever happens, to... I think this is true of, of a sober existence as well. I would apply that to depression, yes. for example. Exactly. You know, if you're depressed and you fight it, or you go and take substances, I mean, some people clearly have to, they feel that's their only option. But if you're depressed and you fight it and you take antidepressants, then you're in a kind of prolonged maintenance program that you might recover from, you might emerge from. But I have found as someone who definitely experiences depression from time to time. If I do the exact opposite of what my English upbringing tells me, you know, in England, they say, don't wallow in your feelings. Actually, if I sit in my depression and almost visualize it like sitting in a bath, the pain tends to pass much quicker. I will often get clarity on why I'm in pain, which is not always clear. Right. And surrendering to that feeling okay i'm depressed i'm not going to try and cheer up or ignore it i'm just going to allow myself to feel this it tends to move through me a lot quicker that's a very good point now if someone is seeking out uh plant medicine and this kind of um experience it's like i know that we can go to south america there's opportunities there I know I don't know anyone personally, but I've heard that there are experiences that we can have here in the United States. Um, I'm sure that's true in Britain as well. But what would you look for in some sort of guide or some sort of program to do this? I mean, I would suggest anyone does more or less what I did, which is ask trusted people who you know I've had those kind of experiences and it's not something you're going to find in the yellow pages. It's not going to something you're going to find on Google, uh, not, not in countries where it's illegal. You'll find it in, like you say, in South America and Costa Rica and you know, these places where there are established centers. Um, but if you don't want to travel, which I didn't want to actually, I, I really wanted to, I thought the, the culture shock of going to somewhere like the Amazon is enough of a trip in itself without loading it up with some psychedelics. I wanted to do it initially, at least on kind of home turf. And I would say, don't rush into it. Really take your time. Be very, very sure. This is not a spontaneous thing. It's uh, something to really find your way into. Um, Find someone like, you know, a, a therapist or a friend, someone who can, like myself, who has had some experiences, who can help you prepare psychologically, who can give you some idea of what you might expect. Mm-hmm. And when you feel really, really clear this is the path for you, then, yeah, before you jump on a plane and go to the jungle and ask the first person you meet in the market, you know, where can I get some ayahuasca or something like that, then, you know, I think that's very dangerous as well. Um, because... Yeah, I think that kind of psychedelic tourism thing is something that is open. You know, these people have, have, have very different lifestyles. And if we all rush down there waving wads of money around looking for the shaman, then suddenly everyone's a shaman, right? 
Mm-hmm. There's some very good, very, very amazing people down there. But um, yeah, for me, doing it on home turf and removing, you know, I'm a white man. I've I've done traditional ceremonies. I've said this many times. I'm not, I'm too soft. You know, I'm too mm-hmm. soft. That These are very, very experienced by my standards, hard, tough people. I'm not tough. Uh, and just some of the physicality of the traditional ceremonies I've done has been too much for me. So sitting upright for 12 hours, my back doesn't want to do that. <laughs> sure. You know, so then it becomes a pain managing experience, which then dominates the experience. Maybe that's what I needed. You know, there's that saying, you, you don't get what you expect, what you, you get what you need. Mm-hmm. There's some value to that. But at the same time, I like my mattress and I like my duvet and I like to crawl underneath and go with wherever the medicine one takes me. And I just want to throw in here at this moment, I, I, I was saying, I was talking to my therapist about an hour ago about, you know, talk, people talking to me about plant medicines. I'm not an expert. I haven't done much of it. I've done ayahuasca six times. I've taken a boga. I've taken peyote once, a boga once, 5-MeO-DMT once. I'm a real beginner. So there's people out there who really know what they're talking about. So you have to take everything I'm saying with that in mind that I'm not some seasoned traveler in this field. I see. Well, that was my next question. In I think we all know about ayahuasca, but what are some of the other uh, alternatives to plant-based mm. medicine? But you covered, you covered those. Yeah, I mean, the others are all plant-based medicine or, or, or certainly, I mean, uh, uh, Iowa, not, uh, 5-MeO-DMT is the venom of the buffo toad from California. Right. Um, so that's smoked. Uh, Iboga is a root uh, from Gabon in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Peyote we know about is, you know. Right, the mushroom. From, yeah, cactus. Okay. Cactus. Yeah. Oh, so it's a cactus. Oh, see, no. I don't know any of this. I've never done any type of psychedelic. Never done any type of these mind-altering uh, type of drugs. So I, I am complete, not even a novice, complete baby about this. So mm-hmm. um, I always want to trust people like you who know about these things, and we all know at least someone who's had a really, really negative experience with, mm. with using these things, perhaps permanently negative experience, right? It can ruin some people. So I uh, always want to approach this with extreme, extreme caution. I Which, think that's re- really sensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really sensible. It can be very, very traumatizing and very frightening. And a lot of that's propaganda also. You know, we were raised in that culture of this is your brain on drugs and just say no and how LSD makes people think they can fly and jump out of window, you know, buildings and things like that. Um, so I think there's a degree of propaganda in there, but there's also a reality that if you have kind of latent schizophrenia, it can trigger that. Mm-hmm. Or it can just be so messy. I mean, you know, it's it's like alcohol. We don't have the same propaganda around alcohol, but alcohol can really mess your head up. Alcohol can put you in very, very dangerous situations that you wouldn't normally enter into. So I just want to balance it a little bit with that. Someone someone messaged me a few years ago when there was this awful incident where someone was stabbed to death mm. by their friend on an ayahuasca retreat. I'm not sure of all the details of that. It doesn't sound like it was held in a particularly safe way and... I did hear, I don't know if this is entirely true, I did hear that the two guys had been on a kind of cocaine holiday and had heard about the ayahuasca retreat and weren't prepared. There was there was stuff that meant <laughs> they shouldn't have been there and it didn't end well. So that's a reality. But at the same time, when I read about it, and uh, you know, I got quite a few e- emails from people saying, see, this stuff is dangerous. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like it was. And how many times a day does someone get stabbed to death uh, where it involves vodka? Or whiskey, or and it doesn't, and it doesn't make the papers, right? Because we're so accustomed to the violence associated with alcohol that it's no longer newsworthy. So I think we have to balance and reframe our attitudes, and we need a lot of education. And there is a real truth and a real danger to this traditional medicine has 
now left the jungle and it's it's in our culture and we're not we don't have the experience to manage it the indigenous people do so we really need to look to people who know what they're talking about when we use these medicines rather than use them in a western way you know because we're not very good at that we haven't got a very good history of <laughs> of managing these things you know we're, we're managing many things if we're yeah. being honest um and of course i know also know and i know you do um people who've had wonderful experiences with these things too eye-opening yeah. healing transformative type of experiences and those mm. don't always make the paper yeah exactly exactly yeah the the bill you know bill hicks was one of my heroes um and he always talked about the lack of positive drug experiences on the news and mm -hmm. you know the the incredible experiences he'd had of kind of openness and love and i you know i think a lot of us have had those experiences and you go okay so why is this illegal exactly <laughs> yeah and what what what's true i mean i i want to stay clear i'm not a big conspiracy theorist and i don't mean this conspiratorially but there is a truth to a lot of our pharmaceutical industry is it's an industry right it's, it's money based and so there's a reality that a lot of the research that's coming out certainly in the uk around uh psilocybin and uh, being used as an antidepressant and a very effective maybe even permanent antidepressant you know one hit seems that. to really adjust people's brain chemistry but that's not good for business you don't really want something that you can only sell once so that's there is you know that's a slightly cynical view but there's some truth to it also i think right no i think there's a, a fair amount of truth to that that you want to keep people hooked want to keep mm. people consuming the product um you know i've taken antidepressants they were literally a lifesaver at one time in my life yeah. i did not use them for yeah very me long. too mm -hmm. right it's so they definitely have their place and i don't want to um, you know, insinuate that, that that type of pharmaceutical would not have its place. But there are alternatives. Hmm. There are many alternatives. And one alternative, as you said, is to sit with the feeling, explore the feeling, feel the feeling, and then it can re safely release. So hmm. there are many different alternatives. And I, I do appreciate your expertise on how we can do these things safely and what to look for and you know just approach it with importance and approach it with reverence and respect that's a, a wonderful thing now i want to shift gears just a little bit there's quite a bit in your book empathy with the devil or empathy for the devil pardon um about sexuality and sexual mm. abuse um predatory or predatory sides misogyny all of this um where would you want to begin with that discussion <laughs> i know it's a huge topic yeah i mean it's you know that the three the three sections of the book sex drugs and rock and roll they're all pretty complex sex in particular i remember someone i worked with teacher of mine saying if you meet someone and i have yet to meet someone who's completely sexually evolved i don't know if i'd know what that even looked like i don't know if i'd recognize it but if you meet someone who's really worked through their sexuality you will meet someone who's really worked through themselves because that's at our core okay. so i think it's a very important again we're talking shadow sides it's a very important shadow side because it's inevitable you know the shadow is just the place we put the, the thing the aspects of ourselves we don't want to know about and in our Western culture, a great many of us have been shamed. Um, in our development, you know, I had zero sexual education at all, accompanied with some pretty dubious sexual, you know, sexual introductions as a as a child and a teenager. And just growing up in a, I think our society now more so than ever, you know, I'm I feel very concerned. I'm not puritanical at all. You know, I'm on the other end of the scale in many ways, but I feel very concerned about the level and access to really, really hardcore pornography that children have now yeah. through technology. And one of the things I've noticed in the last few years is getting quite a few clients, late 20s, early 30s, who manifest 
most, if not all, of the symptoms that I would associate with someone who's been sexually abused, and yet no sexual abuse story. And I found that very puzzling. I was like, is this just really buried? Is something going to emerge? And actually, I don't think there is a person who's abused them. I think what's happened is they've been exposed as children to the internet and very hardcore pornography. So the abuse has come from technology. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a co-worker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, back to our podcast and back to our guest. And a lot of these kids, their parents you know, in all good faith have said, right, you need a computer in your bedroom so you can study your homework. And then don't realize or didn't realize 20 years ago that the first thing the kids or the boy is going to do is look for pornography. And then they get pulled in, you know, you can get some very dark corners of the internet where they get pulled in. So that's what's happening to the boys. And then the girls are being exploited and being bullied. They're being pressured into sharing naked shots themselves by their boyfriends that then gets used as currency in the playground you know i think it's um we're in a whole new zone of sexuality that has happened really quickly like in the last two decades yes and the the consequences of that and and the sexual expectations of people who've been raised on pornography i mean i was born in 84 at 64 same year as you right i didn't have any exposure to anything like what is seen now I, w- I would you know i think i found a pornographic magazine in my father's you know magazine rack once and it was super soft core compared with what kids are exposed to now um so these these are the kind of i'm not well it sounds like i'm judging it i'm not trying to judge it. i'm just saying look be aware this is out there we need to find management systems for this your children are going to be exposed to this we need to educate same as with with substances right same as with mind altering you know consciousness expanding substances we need education and we need discussion right we need to shine a light on it we need to know and talk about yeah we need to have these conversations and that's important i've got a 14 year old almost 15 year old daughter and yeah. it's really terrifying yeah. um yeah so the, that said there has been a lot of sexual abuse i am a hypnotherapist i'm a reiki master i kind of jokingly say that nobody ever comes to see me because their life is going great Oh, I say exactly the same, yeah, yeah. Exactly, right, with the psychotherapy. Right, I see a tremendous number of people who are still healing as adults, in late, older adults, healing from sexual abuse as a child. Do you feel it's, imp- it's possible to heal from that? Nope. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, well, I'm ambivalent about this term heal i still i mean i've been doing this 27 years i'm still not sure what it means it's such a easily used word like change is an easily used word that i find i i am guilty of using but when you stop in and go hold on but what does this really look like what does it mean i don't know i don't know it's like if you cut your finger 
if you treat it appropriately, it will heal and there will be no evidence you had to ever cut your finger. That's mm -hmm. not the same with sexual abuse. No. There's always going to be evidence. You're always going to remember those experiences and you will possibly, I don't want to sound negative here, but I think you will, it's, a, it's going to be a different management system for someone who's been sexually abused in how they navigate their sexuality and their sexual life to someone who's not ever had. I, even that, I'm hesitating because, like I say, I think everyone's been sexually abused now by our, mm -hmm. our society. But nevertheless, if you've not been physically uh, abused by a person or had really toxic experiences, I doubt it's going to be as complex for, as someone who has. That's not to say you can't do a lot of very positive work to redress some of that. And right. you know, I, I'm a big fan of Gabor Mate. Do you know his work? No, I don't. Gabor, Gabor Mate is a wonderful uh, Canadian physician who works with addiction and a lot... Um, his, I was watching something, uh, a film he made recently, and he said something, I thought, oh, that's so obvious. Why have I been doing this for so long? And I, I couldn't encapsulate it so simply. But he said, trauma is not what happened to you. We all know people who have car crashes and what you would think of as a traumatic event and yet seem untouched. Trauma is what ha when something bad happens that you have no one to talk to about. So I think, and there's something hardwired into you know this is part of the problem with sexual abuse is there's an instinctive response from the person the victim not to speak about it the shame that is associated we tend to go silent i've i can think of one person off the top of my head that i've ever worked with the reported abuse as a child mm. it's normally later in therapy that they'll go you know what I mean, in my own experience, which I write about in the book, I didn't know I was abused because I was told by my abuser, you're very lucky. This is every young man's dream. I was like, and she was a grown-up. So I was like, oh, you're a grown-up. I've been taught to listen to even though I don't quite often. But I, it wasn't until a therapist said, whoa, whoa, hold on. She did what? And you were shaking and frightened and saying no. I was like, yeah, but that's not abuse. And he was like, okay, so you've got a 17-year-old girl lying on a bed, naked, shaking and saying no, and a man in his mid-40s has sex with her anyway. What's that? I said, that's rape. And he went, so what's the difference? And that was a kind of, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Moment. And I was 50, probably. Late 40s, early 50s. You know, And I'd been a therapist and just hadn't really got into the, the those dark corridors that I'm talking about because that's part of the protection mechanism right is to deny it to minimize it to dismiss it to push it away to just forget about it and move on and oh. so I think talking you know getting people to talk is such a simple thing and yet such a difficult thing and I, I can work with people for well I was going to say decades I mean that's actually true there are people I've worked with for decades who I still don't know what happened to them. I know the headlines. I know they were abused by their father or their teacher or whatever. I'm not going to ask them the detail until they volunteer it because it's such a fragile area that you can re-traumatize someone. So that, that just requires a shitload of patience on both parties just to go, all right, there's no pressure here. There's, you know, Right. Yes. And in hypnotherapy, I spend hours talking mm. with people, getting an intake about their family, their main life events, fears, phobias, health, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of this extensive interview, we get to the end and then I'll ask, well, is there anything else that you think is important for me to know that we haven't talked about before? You know, we got all the information about their life. That's when they'll often say, yeah, I was sexually abused as a child. I was raped by my father. Um, this that's typically when it will come out after they've said everything else and so it's in many times people are told don't ever tell anybody you can't tell anybody nobody will believe you if you do I will hurt you if you do yeah so yeah that's a big part of our shadow work isn't it um 
So in the book, there's also confronting your predatory side. So looking at this abuse in a little different way. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was kind of freaky. And I, I felt a kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a moral obligation, but I just thought, what if I, I've put quite a lot of focus on myself as a victim. And sure. that was necessary to work through that. And that's work in progress. That's ongoing. But what about this statement that you often hear, again, quite casually thrown about that all abusers have been abused? Mm. Um, you know, that if you're abused, you become an abuser. And I thought, well, I've never met anyone that put their hand up and went, yep, yeah, that's me. But what if I have the courage to ask that question of myself? It's like, well, no, I don't have sexual feelings towards children. Mm-hmm. But then if you get into the kind of more min- the minutiae rather than, you know, molesting children, what about my boundaries? And what about, you know, have I behaved in, have I objectified women? And what about my boundaries just in life in general? How has that been shaped? And I got into some areas where it it wasn't, you know, it's like, oh my God, I'm a monster. But I just thought it was a necessary inquiry to, like you say, shine the light on because our darkness is only possible if it's, if we're blind to it. Right. And I think by going into those places, I could see how I'd behaved in certain relationships where I wasn't very proud of my behavior and take a bit more ownership of that. And hopefully by doing so, not repeat that behavior, you know, in the same way or have a different relationship to it or have different language. And, and also look at some hard truths, which is one of the things I recognized in doing this was when a woman i'm you know i'm i'm heterosexual and when a woman hits puberty my relationship to that person changes mm-hmm. and that feels quite primal quite animalistic again i'm not i don't have any attraction to teenage girls but there's a shift in the babe so i have two daughters and i have a stepdaughter there's a difference in how i will cuddle them how i will physically interact with them mm-hmm. That is quite instinctive. You know, I didn't have to think that one through. Um, But I think it's an important one to look at. So what changed? You know, I started to recognize them as sexual beings. And that's that's something that I think is scary for a lot of, oh, shit, what does that mean then? Does that mean, you know, no, it's just look, look at ourselves. Look at our sexuality in the broadest way possible. Look at the things that are a bit scary. Look at how you might have behaved, you know, there was that film, um, oh God, I can't remember. It was, I was out recently, uh, A Promising Young Woman. Oh, yes. Uh, and that was a rape story. And of course, all of the, she, I think the story, if I remember it correctly, was she was confronting a lot of the guys that had raped her when she was at college or raped her friend, not her, her friend. And all of these, this was like 10 or 15 years later. And all of them were going, yeah, I was young and I was stupid then, but I'm a nice guy now. And it's like, oh. yeah, you are a nice guy. And, and, you know, it's, we all want to be nice guys. Well, who are the toxic ones then? It's also often the nice guys. It, there's, there's rarely this monster, you know, walking around with horns. That's why I'm saying empathy for the devil. Have enough empathy or self-compassion to go into your darkness and go, wow, there are, there's things I'm capable of that unless I take ownership of and don't deny by going, yeah, but I'm a nice guy. Yeah, you're a nice guy. And you're also capable of really dark things. Otherwise, who's doing, if there's, a, this, this number is a little bit um, unscientific for me, but I've read there's that one in seven people has been abused. I think that's conservative because so many of us never talk about it. Mm-hmm. But if you go with one in seven, I hear different figures, and there's 7 billion people on the planet. Who's doing all the molesting? Not one person. That's a lot of, that's a billion people who have been sexually abused. Who's doing it? You know, Mm -hmm. or who are the pornographers, or who are the people in marketing that will Photoshop? I was going to say a woman's body is now also a man's body. Photoshop in such a ridiculous way, and then use it on the cover of magazines 
that's again the very very thin end of sexual abuse but it's body shaming people women have always been subjected to this forever men are now being subjected to this so what's that doing to us psyche as a culture where we're all walking around comparing ourselves with photoshopped images of people that don't exist and feeling bad about ourselves and what's that doing to our relationships blah blah, blah. you know i could talk to you for weeks oh, <laughs> You will never want for work as a psychotherapist, I'll tell you that, mm. right? Because there's always the shadow. And yes, this empathy for the devil. And, you know, I love the spin on the Rolling Stones song. Um, empathy is just another level of understanding and understanding that we all have this inside of us. And I love your subtitle, Make Your Demons Work For You Without Selling Your Soul. Which brings me to a question. Do you feel that there are such things as demons, literal demons? Uh, literally, no. That's not my belief system. Me there are too. People, yeah, there's people who do believe that, and I choose to believe them. I think work with your culture, work with your belief system. If you come to me, which I have had people come to me who feel that they are you know, affected by demons, I don't waste any time debating whether that's real or not. That's fine. Um, I have to say I did meet two when I was a baby. My first ever memory is of an angel and a demon appearing by my bed. Literally my first ever memory. I was in a cot, so I might have been newly born for all I know. I can't remember. It was in the first year of my life. So that's interesting that that's that theme has kind of been around for a while for me sure and when i when i get a little bit psychoanalytic about it which i try not to because i quite like the mystery i think well what's what's a baby dealing with they they're dealing with right and wrong and good and bad and mm -hmm. you know so maybe i had a vision of, of or some kind of manifestation of good and bad you know in a very simplistic term but i think it's a bit more complex than that it just probably set me on a path of inquiry around these dualities because i don't really think they're useful actually good and bad is not terribly useful because you can only be one or the other in our system and i don't believe in that interesting this is interesting because i've always um thought that this is my world the root chakra i've always thought the root chakra was the most important questions of survival fear trust stability all of these things and i feel like it is fully formed or it is forming as we are infants so that you bring this in right. as an infant that is really really interesting for your life path i am totally digressing here but you know issues of sexuality issues of even mm. drug use and all of these things that come from this i do believe comes from root chakra trauma mm. so right. that is interesting and embracing that part of us that has that trauma mm. so helpful mm. very helpful so yeah i yeah so basically what you're saying is that um demons are kind of what we what we make of them it's our for show. me it's a motif so it's a motif when i think of for example, my relationship with tobacco, the first thing I did when I was born was give up cigarettes, right? Because my mom smoked through the pregnancy, so my blood system was hooked up to hers. This was in an era where people weren't educated or informed about tobacco in the same way as we are now. Right. Uh, so the first thing I did was kick, <laughs> kick cigarettes. Um, and my relationship to, with tobacco has been problematic throughout my life. In mm. Tibet, they think of tobacco as a demon that possesses people. That certainly felt like it. You know, cravings for tobacco right. are so powerful. And one of the ways I worked with it was to use that motif and see that tobacco demon as something that was manipulating me, someone, something that was bullying me, something that was pressuring me. You know, I could be sitting on my couch completely warm safe comfortable it's pouring with rain and freezing cold because it usually is in england outside and that demon is saying you need to go to the shops to buy tobacco and i'm going but i really don't want to i don't want to get cancer i don't want to smell of tobacco i don't want to pay the money i don't care you're going to the shop and eventually i would break and i'd find myself walking through the rain standing outside on the street corner smoking a cigarette to to have the, the motif as a demon and go no i don't want to be told what to do 
I don't want to be pushed around. I don't want to be bullied. I am the boss of this organism that is currently called Jerry Hyde in this incarnation. I want to be in charge really helps me because I've got issues around authority that I kind of pride myself in being rebellious. And it feels kind of ironic and almost hypocritical that I'm then doing what I'm told by some demon that wants me to smoke Marlboro, you know. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. We could apply that to any addiction, even yeah. toxic relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, you're being dictated to by the part that, you know, the payoff is a little hit of dopamine or whatever you get from, from that experience, which is, yeah, you and I know can often be very toxic. Often is. Not always. But that's that's what I'm trying to reframe here is take your demons, make them work for you. Okay, so everyone who's ever been addicted to anything which again sorry it used to be an exclusive club now anyone who's got a mobile phone or uses the internet probably has a degree of addiction um that obsessive compulsive drive that fuels an addiction can be channeled into other areas if you like i'm not saying it's easy but i've written a book that's an obsessive compulsive behavior that i use my addiction to drive me into the, you know, it's an obsessive thing when you write a book, every word you've got to check, does this word, does this sentence work, is this chapter working, blah, blah, blah. It's a two, three, whatever, however long process, same as filmmaking, same as painting, same as learning an instrument. You think what it takes to become proficient in a musical instrument. It's not a coincidence that a lot of musicians struggle with addiction because that same kind of drive to become exceptional on your instrument can also take you down very dark paths and sometimes it's a fine line between the two so i'm always encouraging people not to heal their addiction but to channel their addiction okay so how do you advise people to do that how do you coach people to do that recognize it own it stop trying to kill it uh and see if you can find like i said things are rarely black and white right if you can own that obsessive drive i mean when i was using it was an obsession i need to get drugs i need a certain amount of drugs to get through the day and to feel comfortable and when that amount of drugs is diminishing i start getting on the phone calling people to make sure that there's no gap in supply right then i'm driving halfway across. i mean this is pre-internet days now everything's deliverable but um you know i'm driving halfway across london again on a freezing cold wet night to sit in a car park somewhere to get something of dubious quality um that's an obsessive lifestyle that, that requires maintenance so take that and go okay i'm going to apply that to learning how to play guitar i'm going to apply that to building a new business i'm going to apply that to my relationship i'm going to throw myself completely into my relationship instead of sitting watching the tv we're going to switch the tv off every night and we're going to talk for half an hour or an hour or whatever i think it's it's finding the positive rather than demonizing hence the title right empathy for the devil make your demons work for you without selling your soul um, where can people read Empathy for the Devil and where can they, how can they contact you for further information? For me, they can get all my details uh, through my website, which is just my name, Jerry with a J, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, uh, .co.uk. The book, I always advise people, if Amazon and the big chains haven't destroyed your local bookstore already, which it probably has, then go to your bookstore and order it. It'll take a bit longer than Amazon. It won't do okay. same day or next day delivery. I'm sorry. Wait a little bit, but, but you know, keep your local businesses alive if you can. And if you can't, then give Jeff Bezos some more money. He'll get more than I will from the book. <laughs> well, there are independent booksellers online, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I have just one final question. If there is anything that we haven't discussed, uh, so I guess that's not really a question. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you think is important to know? Part three was a bit of a 
shoehorning in. It was it took more effort to to make the sex, drugs, and rock and roll motif work. But the rock and roll bit, I do think is important. Which I yeah made a slightly tenuous argument, although I believe in it that a rock and roll band, in essence, is a kind of hunting pack. Uh, it comes from our kind of tribal origins and I then spin off in a fairly typically ADD which is how my brain works but um into looking at the loss of community and the impact of that on our society and the impact of that on our our glo- you know our planet uh, and consumerism and the need for community which we've lost uh, and you know we we go searching for it on through social media but it's actually anti-social media most of the time (laughs) right right yeah because that's your book is in part in three parts sex drugs rock and roll right Mm. and even within the rock and roll genre culture there's death metal there's goth Mm. there's you know these Mm. kind of dark basically it's music is about sex or it's about death Mm. and conflict right so Mm. It's a good way to get our, our shadow stuff out there and yeah. share that, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. this has been a fascinating discussion. Absolutely so interesting. So I would urge anybody to hit up your local bookseller, uh, independent booksellers online, and pick up Empathy for the Devil and check out jerryhyde.co.com. Is that correct? Uh, .co.uk. .uk. Perfect. And connect in that way. Jerry, thank you so much for talking with me today. No, it's been a pleasure, Christy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts.